Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Kohler. They design innovative sinks and faucets for people who do their best work in the kitchen. So every year, America's Test Kitchen publishes a dozen or so cookbooks, and some of which might already be on your bookshelf. Our kitchen in Boston is a truly amazing place, especially if you're a fan of food. Dozens of stoves, ovens, pots and pans as far as the eye can see. The place never smells not amazing. And it shows in the cookbooks that come out. Now, I'm biased, but I think they're really good, and people seem to like them. So I was browsing online one day, and this one cookbook, not an ATK cookbook, really caught my eye. It's called A Hero's Feast. Reporter Sarah Vitag is here to tell us more about that book. Now, Sarah, you're also interested in A Hero's Feast, right? Yeah, it's basically a cookbook with recipes inspired by Dungeons & Dragons, the tabletop role-playing game. I've been thinking so much recently about the art of storytelling and fantasy world-building. And truly, there is nothing I love more than unique subcultures. It's intriguing to me how passionate people can be about one specific thing. And the whole concept just ignited an itch that I needed to scratch. I instantly had so many questions, and it really all stemmed from this book. So two things really surprised me about Heroes Feast. Number one, our equipment review guru, Adam Reed, you've seen him on TV, he developed recipes for this book. And number two, it's got almost as many positive reviews as America's Test Kitchen's best-selling cookbook and better reviews than some of our other books. I mean, a cookbook about Dungeons and Dragons? I find that both delightful and amazing. And the other thing, Kevin, is it isn't just D&D. It turns out wherever there are fans, there are cookbooks. There are cookbooks for The Big Lebowski. Yeah, well, the dude abides. Black Panther. When the dust settles. You and me can work something out. I'm not here to make a deal. The Office. And Downton Abbey. Just to name a few. I even found a cookbook based on Fifty Shades of Grey called Fifty Shades of Chicken. It's pretty ridiculous. What happens in this room will be very intense for you. Now let's get started. So this enthusiasm is clearly an almost universal phenomena among fans. And writing a cookbook isn't an easy feat. So imagine creating a whole cookbook for a world that doesn't really exist. It's a massive endeavor. At least when you're making a standard cookbook, you're working in a world that exists, with ingredients that exist, and with culinary traditions that exist. Making food from an imaginary world opens up a whole other can of Klingon serpent worms. So, Sarah, what do you think drives someone to make a cookbook about D&D or The Office or Gilmore Girls? Where would you even start if you had to come up with recipes based on a fictional world? Well, my journey to answer these questions took me to several fantasy worlds, the kitchens of a few fan cookbook creators, and on a couple of side quests about how food can be used to tell stories. Today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, the fandom fueling cookbooks from fictional worlds. I'm Kevin Pang. Stick around. Hey, Proof listeners. I love kitchen gadgets that look cool and are a huge time saver. 
That's why the Sengoku HeatMate Graphite Grill and Toaster Oven is the perfect solution. This powerhouse packs in a ton of great features. The toaster comes with a handy grill rack, griddle pan, flat pan, and toasting net accessories. No need for oven mitts either, because the rack slides out when you open the door. You can cook, among many things, up to four slices of bread or one nine-inch pizza. And it'll cook them quickly with Sengoku's revolutionary graphite heating technology, which requires no preheating. Literally, it heats up in one second, no joke. The sleek retro design of the Sengoku HeatMate graphite grill and toaster oven is as easy on the eyes as it is easy to use. Check it out for yourself. Proof listeners can save 10% and get free shipping by using the code ATK10 at checkout. Just go to SengokuLA.com. That's S-E-N-G-O-K-U-L-A.com to order yours today. Reporter Sarah Vitak brings us today's story. I just starkly remember being terrified and like late at night and I'm running across the field to try to get to the drawbridge in time. And there is no actual way to sprint all the way across the field and get to the drawbridge before it goes up and then night starts. That is Amy Wood describing the first time she played The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time which is a video game from the late 90s. In the game, you move around the world as Link, a Hylian, which is basically an elf-like human. The kingdom you're exploring in the Zelda games is called Hyrule. You're just trying to save a kingdom. The kingdom's worth saving. And you've got an ocarina in one hand, a sword in the other. Amy discovered Zelda when she was around seven years old. And the intense and visceral experience of playing the open-world game pulled Amy in instantly. She didn't know it then, but this game, well, really, this world that she was running around inside, would take her on the culinary adventure of a lifetime and ultimately change her life. In 2017, a new edition of Legend of Zelda came out called Breath of the Wild. The game had mechanics that allowed players to gather ingredients, find recipes, and cook them into meals. Like, here's fire-roasted peppers, and here's salmon mayonnaise, and I just needed to make, like, vegetable curry in real life. And they have all these little pictures, and then you can watch Link eating them, and so it was just very hunger-inducing. I would like to second this. I looked up some images, and I did not know that a veggie curry dish with so few pixels could be so mouth-watering. And so over time, I decided, you know what, actually, I am going to make... Chateau Romani, what would that be like in real life? So Amy started making a few recipes, taking notes on note cards and attempting each a few times to get it right. And then that turned into a dozen. And then that turned into a couple dozen. And then I was thinking, you know what? I actually should just go through the entire Breath of the Wild compendium of recipes that you can make in that game. Amy was completely immersed in this kitchen quest. Everything from the fragrant mushroom sauté to that Chateau Romani, or a special vintage milk from the game, all fed Amy's inspiration. Eventually, she emerged with 150 recipes. I had, like, every recipe from Breath of the Wild, but then going back through all of the old-school games, I had alchemy, I had bartending, I had, like, leaf steaming and curries, desserts, soups, stews. By this time, Amy was organizing the recipes on her computer. 
She didn't know what to do with these pages and pages of recipes. She sort of felt like she had a cookbook on her hands. But was it something that other people would be interested in? I have a few friends who are into Zelda and they were like, this is amazing. But they also think that I'm amazing because we're friends. And so I didn't know how much of it was just friends being supportive because they're good friends, right? Amy made a campaign on Kickstarter for an unofficial Zelda cookbook with a target goal of raising $3,000. And then, all of a sudden, Zelda fans just started coming out of the woodwork. The 3K mark was done within the first 24 hours. And over the next 30 days, we raised, it was over $80,000. I think it was $86,000 for this independent, unofficial, nerdy cookbook. $86,000? That is wild. Yeah, the zeal that Zelda fans showed for Amy's cookbook seems to be more of the rule than the exception. So my name's Isaac May. I'm Ashley May. I love role-playing, and in the past few years, I have fallen in love with food. Delivering on the idea for a Dungeons & Dragons cookbook was also the product of a tidal wave of fan encouragement for writers Isaac and Ashley May. For the uninitiated, Dungeons & Dragons is a fantasy tabletop role-playing game. Players act as a character, they're usually fantasy creatures, in a small group with one person who is the DM, or Dungeon Master. The DM is sort of telling a story of what's happening to these characters and giving them the goals of their quests. Players make decisions about what actions they want their characters to attempt, be it swinging a sword at a dragon or picking a mysterious item up off the ground. And then they roll the dice or look to the DM to see if they were able to complete the action or what the result of the action was. D&D, as Dungeons & Dragons is called, has a huge fan base. Like, an estimated 50 million players worldwide played the game in 2020. Ashley and Isaac are themselves fans, and they're kind of a big deal in the D&D world. They're best-selling writers for the Dungeon Masters Guild, where they create written guides and add to the world of D&D. And they both love cooking. Ashley grew up in a classic Southern family where, quote, there was no family gathering that did not involve copious amounts of food. Isaac went to culinary school and even trained as a chef. So their two passions, D&D and cooking, collided when Isaac posted about the idea for making it on a D&D Discord, which is essentially a web forum. And the response was overwhelming. And everyone's like, do it. And that's all they talked about for like three days. And of course, I'm like, oh, no, what have I done? Now I have to do it. And over the next couple of days, I would just pull out my phone and go, they're still talking about your cookbook. And he's like, don't tell me that. So why do you think there is so much interest in these fan cookbooks? Well, for Amy, I think a part of her motivation for the Zelda cookbook was what drew her to the game in the first place. That visceral sense of adventure and being immersed in that world. When I'm cooking a recipe from The Legend of Zelda, I feel like I'm bringing Hyrule to my own kitchen. I am saying my own world is not that different from this fantasy world. And while I might want to experience some escapism by playing a video game, I can also better myself by cooking from the same fantasy worlds that I might be escaping to. Making food from Hyrule allowed her to bring that adventurous and exploratory spirit into her kitchen. Every recipe was like a new quest, and the final boss was publishing the cookbook. 
And Amy wants fans who are using her cookbook to have the same experience. In one of the first pages, I have an introduction to Hyrulean cooking. And I emphasize that you need to be like Link. Link is the main character. He is the hero, but he's not risk averse. He is very adventurous. He's very experimental in the kitchen. I want everyone to be able to step into their kitchen and realize, oh, you know what? I don't have this ingredient, but you know what? I think a tomato might work. I'm going to use a tomato. Like, just explore. Be like Link. For Ashley and Isaac, even before the cookbook, D&D and food just went hand in hand. Food was kind of like the glue that kept the role-playing and the camaraderie of the game together. We always talk about when we hang out, what are we going to eat? What are we all going to grab? And more often than not, it becomes very communal. And I feel that's just kind of you have a group of people at a table. There's this natural need, even if you're playing games, to also eat. Especially if you're going to be playing a game for four or five hours, six or seven hours. <laughs> D&D and cooking have a lot of overlap, too. Once you understand a set of ground rules and master some techniques, you can start to explore and be creative. The intersection at that point that we discovered between tabletop role-playing and cooking is like... It's, it's a straight cross. Like, there are so many people who are both into these hobbies. And either they cook as a hobby or they cook professionally and then Dungeons & Dragons is their hobby. You can be sitting at the table eating the same food as your character. Like dire cow enchilada casserole, comfort buns, or truffle hunter treats. I asked them why they thought the idea of the D&D cookbook was so popular. There is a whole new level of love and passion involved when you're cooking food and putting it in front of people who are your friends and people you care about and going, I want you to enjoy this. Amy also experienced this. She started a Discord server, basically a chat room, for her Zelda cookbook. And I have over a thousand people just chatting and helping test recipes and like just bonding with each other. They've even had meetups in real life now. They help other members when they're having difficulty with any of the recipes. They give Amy ideas for more recipes they want to see. And pretty much all of these people were total strangers to Amy when she launched the Kickstarter. I don't think that we're strangers anymore. I have heard people that have read it cover to cover, which is not what some... You don't normally read a cookbook cover to cover, right? Like, that's not a normal thing people do. Well, it is a normal thing Zelda fans do. And I'll have people comment or, like, leave a review saying that they've read it cover to cover and that they now know me and that we're friends. And so they're no longer strangers. They're friends. Above all, cooking gives fans another outlet for their fandom. The word fan is short for fanatic, which the Oxford English Dictionary defines as a person filled with excessive and single-minded zeal. Their fandom allows them to experience and explore their favorite fantasy world in a new and different way. Amy says, For the same reason we make elaborate costumes and cosplay and meet each other at conventions, it's another way to transform our fantasy into reality. But why is food the thing where so many people decide to showcase their fandom? To explain, let's start with the concept of world building. World building is something of an art form. The world of a story, whether it be The Legend of Zelda or an episode of Gilmore Girls, needs to be built out and imagined enough for people to want to step into or pull things out of it as they're doing to make these cookbooks. Ashley puts it this way. 
To me, good stories can't happen in a vacuum. You have to have a living, breathing world for them to take place in. And food is such a huge part of culture. To get a bit more insight on food and world building, I talked to Eric Malinsky, the host of a podcast called Imaginary Worlds. The way I often joke about the show or describe it is imagining if NPR went to Comic-Con and decided that's all they ever wanted to cover. The show ends up sounding like that, whether I mean to or not. To some degree, world building is pretty self-explanatory. It's the creation of a world that's different from our own. But Eric thinks about world building sort of like a thought experiment. I think that part of what world building is, is that we all have our sense of what the real world is, of what our real world is. But when you're creating a new world, you start to make decisions about what's different in that world. And then as you continue to build the world, you play out all of the ramifications of those things that are different. You know, you have to then keep asking yourself, well, what if this, then what? You know, then when did this happen? Has this always been here? How did society evolve because of this? Think about every single thing in society that is different. How is it different? You sort of need to then lay out the rules for people um, in a way that you don't if you're setting something in the real world. Food often becomes a tool of world building. And of all the elements of world building, food is a particularly interesting medium to play with because it interacts with so many elements of a world. You can see this in real life. I was a huge fan of Anthony Bourdain's show, and I I always thought it was really interesting the way that he would look at how food can be an expression of all this stuff as well. How can it, it can be a, an expression of identity? You know, you can learn about the environment through food. You can learn about values. You can learn about culture. Just as in the real world, you can use food as a lens for so many things. History, religion, ethics, agriculture, politics, almost any topic, really, you can find connections to food. Someone who's building an imaginary world can work with that to tell the story of the world organically. And conversely, in our real world, there are researchers that study this kind of thing sort of in the opposite direction. One of those people is Marissa Weinecke. I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. I wanted to talk to Marissa because she has done research on fandom foodways. So just to give you a crash course, folklore covers anything that is vernacular culture. So any culture that's sort of unofficial. So like the fact that you eat chicken noodle soup when you're sick is part of folk medicine and folk foodways. Studying foodways is really expansive though. It covers basically any way that people interact with food. For example, in my interview with Marissa, we discussed some work by another folklorist, C. Paige Gutierrez. She wrote a book about Cajun foodways and particularly about crawfish. Gutierrez went to Louisiana and looked at everything crawfish. She looked at how ingredients are gathered, how a crawfish boil is run. She dug into crawfish jokes, things with crawfish on them, crawfish festivals. She wanted to know how did crawfish become such a part of Louisiana's identity? And then in talking with them, it became obvious that the crawfish was something very, very specific. And so then she interviewed people about crawfish, then was able to talk about and sum it up as to like how crawfish is tied to the sense of Cajunness. So really, the core question is, what do all these details surrounding the culinary culture tell you about the identity of the people making the food? 
The questions that folklorists are using sounded a lot to me like the same exact kinds of questions that Eric was talking about using to world build. What folklorists like Marissa do is almost the opposite of world building. It's sort of like world deconstructing, like trying to pull apart all these tangled threads of cultures and how they work. Marissa wanted to look at fandom foodways. To be clear, she wasn't interested in looking at how the foodways were operating inside of the imaginary worlds. She wanted to look specifically at how fans were recreating the foods from these worlds. And ultimately, the specific questions she was trying to drill down on were ones that were fairly common for food waste researchers. Which is like, well, what makes this version authentic? And how are people negotiating authenticity? Because authenticity is slippery, right? For example, she spent some time looking at fans making butterbeer, a drink from Harry Potter. And it was split half and half between people that are like, well, there's an old Tudor recipe where you put butter in beer. And we'll do that. Or something based off of eggnog that's very historically based versus people who are like, well, I am trying to mimic what exists at the Disney parks. It's interesting because there's no right answer. But there are different paths people take depending on who they consider to be their official source or what part of making the food is most important to them. It's an interesting line that people are consciously navigating. So like when you sit down and you're like, what does butterbeer taste like? I don't know. What do I think it tastes like? Do I want to go the historical route? Or do I think that it tastes like the official merchandise? Fans have to decide where they fall on these types of questions. And here, I think, is the core of why food in particular is such a draw for fans. Cooking allows fans to showcase their identity, creativity, ingenuity, dedication, and lived experiences in the choices they make. To be able to create a cookbook that's authentic, you need a real, deep understanding of the world. You have to have imagined the experience, been immersed in the world, and have your own angle on it. You need to have really paid attention. If you create a recipe for vegetable curry and it doesn't look like the one in Zelda, or if you make butterbeer and it doesn't have the right characteristics or the right taste, then it shows you aren't that big of a fan, because you aren't paying attention to the details. Marissa told me about a Star Trek cookbook that was kind of a flop with the fan base. I looked at some of the one-star reviews, and they were scathing. People were pointing out all the inconsistencies and the lack of research. Conversely, if you get it right, it's like the ultimate humble brag. You're saying, look at how well I know this book or game or TV show. Functionally, for people like Marissa, the result is that these fantasy food creations can end up telling us more about the individual making the food than they do about anything else. For example, I asked Amy how she approached her recipe for Chateau Romani. In the game, it looks like a glass bottle with a cork that has a bright purple label with gold script that's indecipherable. The Zelda wiki lists Chateau Romani as a very expensive vintage milk produced by the best of Romani ranches' specially bred cows, and has a note suggesting that it might be based on kumis, a fermented mare's milk. Amy wasn't aware of the connection to real-world kumis at all. When I imagined Chateau Romani, like what it would taste like as a kid, I always imagined it would be like kind of like nectar-like, nectar of the god, like sweet, right? Um, and so as an adult, I at this point had uh, found royal milk tea, which is served generally kind of warm, right? And so the Shotabu Romani recipe that's in my book, it, it's based off of royal milk tea. This choice reveals something about Amy's relationship to the game and her understanding or imagining of a food from that world. 
it's an ongoing series, kind of like Harry Potter, right? So you start growing up with it when you're little, but even when you're an adult, there's still more media coming out. And so you're connecting to your past self in the same way that you're connecting to this fantasy. No matter how old you are, you can still return to Hyrule. So it takes you back to that time when you were a child and like that mystical, magical moment when you're able to like run through the fields of Hyrule. Like, how else are you going to awaken that as a 30-year-old when you see, like, the state of the world and everything as it is? Like, we need that shot of fantasy in our lives. Amy's interpretation of Chateau Romani was relatively harmless. But world-building and fans making foods from imagined worlds isn't always rainbows and unicorns. It can be problematic when we're not paying close attention to who we're centering when it comes to world-building. There can be unintended consequences for unexamined choices. When we return, when world building goes awry. Eating great food is one thing. The prep and cleanup afterwards is, well, something else. That's where Kohler comes in. When prepping for recipes, you can tell the voice-controlled faucets to dispense measured amounts of water. Kohler's faucets also feature a sweep spray to quickly get any gunk off of your dishes. Even if your hands are messy, you can wave on and off the touchless faucets. That way, you can clean with ease. Visit Kohler.com to learn more. It's summer, and there's nothing like biting into sweet, juicy, peak-season fruit. I'm a huge fan of mangoes, hashtag Mangolasi, and my six-year-old helped plant strawberries this year. The strawberry fruit tarts we made have been so delicious. Lucky for me, OXO has a number of tools that will make it easier for my family to enjoy a bounty of fruit this summer. And OXO's strawberry huller will make it easy for my six-year-old to enjoy all those berries he'll gather from our yard or at least the ones the rabbits don't eat. Find your tools at OXO.com. Right now, OXO is offering a special discount for proof listeners. Just use the code ATK15 for 15% off on OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO, better guaranteed. A lot of companies we know and love began as a shared family dream. That origin story is similar for the Veroni family. You know the one. They've been making authentic Italian charcuterie since 1925. The five Veroni brothers made it their mission to produce high-quality charcuterie from their family's roots in a small town in the Emilia-Romagna region. It's the home of beloved meats like Italian prosciutto, mortadella, and other great salamis. Today, the fourth generation of Veronis are producing genuine Italian cured meats and sharing them with the world. For more information on the Veroni family's recipes, artisanal techniques, and meats, visit Veroni.com. That's V-E-R-O-N-I.com. And now, back to our story. Marissa, the fandom foodways researcher, came upon some problematic trends when looking at fans who are making food from Star Trek. The dish was gah. I'm not a Star Trek fan, but I think you have to get that throat gah sound to get it right. Star Trek fans, please do not come for me. So gah is a Klingon dish. It's made from serpent worms, which are ostensibly a type of worm from their home planet. Um, they're from Kronos. 
And the worms are supposed to be eaten alive. The real draw of the dish is that it's a sensory experience where you, as you eat it, you feel the worms go through their death rows. And Ga plays a key role in one particular episode. A character named Riker, who is second in command of the Enterprise, is on a Klingon ship eating a meal with them. Riker is facing an initiation of sorts through a meal that the Klingons serve him. It's just like any scene in Downton Abbey where they're like sitting down and eating and who is eating what and how they're eating it and who knows how to eat what is a marker of status. The same thing is happening between Riker and the Klingons and not being grossed out by their food and being able to eat it means that he is a warrior worthy of their respect and they are expecting him to fail. And so because they're expecting him to fail and tell him as much, he's then like bolstered to kind of choke it down. So Marissa was looking at the different ways that fans try to make Ga. And when you think about it, to some degree, the most authentic thing to do would be to make a dish out of live worms. And worms were often presented as a way of creating the dish, but always tongue-in-cheek. It was always like, you could eat worms, but you never would, right? With one exception, Marissa found that people mostly went for on-screen accuracy. There's an infamous recipe that is just shredded ginger in like a chocolate sauce. That one was supposed to like look kind of accurate, but also like the ginger was supposed to be the unpleasantness of eating it. By and large, though, most people are making the dish with noodles. The interesting thing about the noodles people choose in most of the recipes, they're choosing ramen noodles or like udon or soba noodles. Very few people are choosing spaghetti. Marissa views this as a means of signaling that the food is alien. And so they're doing types of noodles that aren't Western. They're going straight to non-Western types of noodles. No matter how common ramen is for you as a white person, it still has that air of kind of Orientalism. This isn't an issue that's arising only at the level of fans trying to translate this food in their home kitchens. It's kind of baked into how the food is presented on screen. Marissa recalled the way the prop master of Star Trek talked about dressing the set and creating Klingon meals. He says he would go to the local Asian market and pick out whatever looked, you know, the most foreign. So there's a lot of, and it's it's other to who. So like, that's one of the things that's most fascinating about sci-fi and most fascinating about people imagining what it would be like to create an authentic version of this dish is that it always tells you the most about the person making it. Ultimately, the stories we tell and the worlds we create are reflections of our real world and our internal biases. Every detail and choice world builders and fans make serve as encoded messages. But every choice they don't consciously make still serves as encoded messages. The flip side of this is that those who are artful with their craft can utilize food as such a powerful tool in storytelling. It can tell you about characters' relationships or motivations. Think of how central food is to so many myths and fairy tales and religious texts. To my way of thinking, you'd better put elements of the story into the food or it's not relevant. This is like when you're an author. If you're writing something and it doesn't add to the story, take it out. That is Janice Poon. She's a food stylist for movies and television. 
You may have seen her work on Star Trek, American Gods, Shape of Water, and many others. She's made space whale meat, faux maggots and grubs, edible moldy bread, plenty of organs, and even hyper-realistic iPhones that are entirely made of candy. But she's most well-known for her work on the show Hannibal and the subsequent cookbook Feeding Hannibal. The cookbook came into being at the behest of voracious fanables. Janice's job on set is to read between the lines and bring the food to life in the most meaningful and thoughtful way. It has to push the viewer's emotion or intuition or whatever, nudge it one way or another way, or it's just not, it has no business being in the frame. She's using those tiny encoded messages to her advantage in order to add to the story or add to the world. Food really is a medium. It's our first means of communication. Before we knew how to speak as a species or even as individuals, food is how we're communicated with. For example, there's a scene in the show where Hannibal, a closeted cannibal masquerading as a gourmet chef, is feeding something called ortolan to a criminal profiler named Will. Among gourmands, the ortolan bunting is considered a rare but debauched delicacy. A rite of passage, if you will. Janice interprets the importance of this platter of ortolan. Ortolan, by the way, is a type of European bird that is illegal to eat. You take the bunting, the baby bird, you capture it first. You put it in a little cage and you, you blind it. And the reason you blind it is because it feeds at night. So if it's blind, it thinks it's night. So it just eats and eats and eats and eats and eats. And it gets so fat that it can't even stand up anymore. It just continues to gorge and gorge and gorge and gorge. So when your little bunting gets to the falling off the perch stage, it's ready for the oven, right? So how do you kill it? Just a warning, this part gets a little graphic. You pick it up and you plunge it into a pitcher of cognac. And why, you suppose, do you do that? Well, it's because the bird goes gasp and its lungs fill with cognac. Then when you eat it... Traditionally, during this meal, we are to place shrouds over our heads, hiding our faces from God. I don't hide from God. Bones and all? Bones and all. At the heart of it, Will and Hannibal's story is about two solitary and seemingly very different people finding a deep love for each other. So Janice made the Ortolan tell this story as well, but in a visual way. So they were perfect, pristine things, slightly separate, together apart, each facing a different direction, identical but opposite. And of course, they were flambéed. And I think very much that was a personification of Will and Hannibal in those two little birds. For Janice, her mandate is to be super immersed in the world herself and to create food that pulls not only the audience, but also the actors even more into the story and into the world. And I think it's worked. The show has garnered a dedicated fan base and the Fanables are obsessed with Janice's work for the show. In fact, the Fanables are the reason the Feeding Hannibal cookbook exists at all. It all started when Janice put up some blog posts about the making of the food for the show. She didn't think anyone would actually look at the blog at all. And then the next day, oh, 500 people have looked at the blog. I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, oh my God, you know, like people would say, what is that thing? I was like, why are you looking at that thing? You know, like people are being murdered. Why are you asking me what kind of mushroom is that? You know, but it was so fun that people were interested. 
I can't believe it. Like, first of all, they were finding it. And then they had so many questions about it. At this point, Janice had already written multiple cookbooks, and she had vowed she wouldn't write one again. But she couldn't help but have a soft spot for the Fanables. I have to tell you, the Fanables are unique. They're very creative, for starters. And they're so polite, and they're so sweet, and they're so helpful, and they're so encouraging. And so when they started clamoring for a cookbook, of course, I couldn't say no. Really, this tone echoes exactly what Amy told me about her surprise at the wildly unexpected success of her Zelda cookbook Kickstarter, and what Ashley and Isaac experienced when they posted their idea for a D&D cookbook on Discord. All my favorite imaginary worlds use food to tell me about the story, the characters, or just add depth and a sense of place. I'm noticing how food can tap into so much. I've been really into this show called Heartstopper recently, and I noticed even the smallest version of this, but it was so powerful. There's this character named Tao who has this habit of buying two apple juices at lunch at his high school. He gets one for him and one for his friend. And in one of the first scenes, you see Tao getting these two juices, but the friend isn't there anymore. She has transferred schools. And so that extra apple juice, it could feel just like sort of a throwaway prop, but it's so much more than that. It tells you the backstory of these characters, the potential future, like how much he cares for her. I'm even rethinking how I see food in my everyday world. Food is such a powerful tool to world build, experience worlds in real life, and deconstruct worlds. I really like this way that Isaac put it. Cooking is storytelling. From start to finish, it is, you know, things from your youth. It is flavors you like. And usually those are attached to memories. The way our brains work, we attach a lot of flavors to memories. It has me thinking about the stories that the food on my plate tells. So maybe chew on this the next time you open your novel, press play on Netflix, or boot up your favorite game. What stories are the foods in your favorite imaginary worlds telling? Or what stories could they be telling? What stories are hidden in the next meal you make? Thanks to Sarah Vitak for bringing us today's story. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer Caitlin Kelleher. I'm Terrence Johnson, and I'm the associate producer. I'm Alex Curran Cardarelli, and I'm also an associate producer. I'm Vanessa Bartlett, and I'm the production intern. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Poynton, Chester Gwazda, and Anya Gzeshik of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composer theme music, additional music by Cal Forster and Jordan Pearson. Ken Margolis is our director of post-production, and our director of production is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Angela Yang. Special thanks to Ariel Roddy and Micah Ling. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen and David Nussbaum is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors, Kohler, OXO, Safisana, Sengoku, and Veroni. 
Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.